as we, uh, as we dig into the text today, and we're going to go back to that Acts 3 text, I'd ask you to find Acts 3. Uh, we're going to look at 1 through 10 again, and we'll kind of take it piece by piece as we walk through. Um, I'm still very excited about, this is the third part of this uh, sermon series where we're talking about the goals that we discerned as a community um, to live out the vision that God has for us, uh, to engage in those together. And, and we did it together, um, and I was really heartened as we did that, what we kind of saw as the consensus points that perhaps God was calling us to for the next year plus. Where we talked about, uh, we're going to pray together as God's people, and, and where we, we started the sermon series with that, talking about the fact that one of my observations is we're really good at praying on an individual level, but as a corporate entity, this has been a growing edge for us for a long time. And so I'm excited for what that, that looks like going forward, and that's a God-sized goal, in my opinion what that looks like to live into that reality. Uh, the second thing, Pastor Jody preached very well on this last week about uh, grouping together and what that means to, to live out this faith thing together and grow together as groups and the value and importance of that. Um, and then this week we talk about sort of an, an implication of going out uh, of the expansion of the kingdom as we look out the doors of the church and reach out and go together to do that. So that's where we're going today. We're talking about the organizing for outreach. The goal has been fleshed out to be that we do four outreach events per year, two of those as the full body, and at least two of those that are done sort of out of the small group entities, uh, knowing that sometimes we're engaged in small groups and sometimes we're, we're not, so we want to have a way for everybody to participate throughout the year. So I want to begin then thinking about outreach and thinking about the community that we live in is, is where I want to look at this. On your way to worship this morning, what did you see? What did you see as you drove here this morning? It was a foggy morning when I came, and I even had this question in mind, what are you observing on the way? And, and we can look at the things on our way, and they become background noise almost, but it wasn't until I was about three blocks away from here that I started to think, well, I could pray for the people in these houses as I drive by them. You know, as, as we come on our way to worship particularly, do we ever think about not the things that we see on the way, but the stories behind those things? The people living in those houses, driving the cars around us. You know, as, as every one of us drove here to worship today, we drove by homes that had families that were fully functional and families that were not. Where, where there were people that were single, there were people that were married. There were people that had kids, people that didn't have kids. We drove by places where people are making it financially and people are struggling financially. We drove by homes where people are happy, sad, lonely, anxious, and keep going on down the list any number of those things. We drove by homes where we have lifetime Nebraskans living there and where new Huskers have just arrived. Right? We see, they're all around us. We drove by homes where there are people who don't believe in God. They're not sure if they believe in God. They do believe in God. They believe in multiple gods. We drove by homes where people believe in good and evil, right and wrong, or where they're totally postmodern and they make up your own truth. I'm not saying every one of those is a right option, I'm just saying, those are the homes we drove by this morning on our way here. Do we take that in as we come? It took me almost the whole ride, and I had the question in mind before I cognitively thought it through. So this is a hard thing. 
to take in. But that's exactly the position that, uh, in a simple way, that we find Peter and John as they walk to prayer in this passage. So let's go to Acts chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. I ask you to follow along. It says, One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, at three in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. Uh, there's an image that's going to come up here, and uh, Elena's doing the slides. I'm going to make her work for it this morning, but she's doing a good job. So, Elena, can you show this first image? Okay. So this is the temple mount, as it probably would have existed in Jesus' day. You can see on the far end, which would be this side for you, there's the, the covered area, Solomon's colonnade, probably where Jesus flipped over the, the tables was more in that end, because it was a covered area. But you can also see in the middle of this is the temple mount. The whole big wide area around that in Jesus' day was called the Court of Gentiles. Uh, there were signs as you crossed over that, which you shouldn't do, that basically said if you cross over this and you're not Jewish, it's on penalty of death. So the Court of Gentiles was this free area where anybody Jewish or not Jewish, which would be Gentile, could congregate. But then let's go to the next slide. So you get a little bit closer in. This is what a representation of what the temple may have looked like in Jesus' day, Herod's temple it would have been known. And this first gate on this side could be the beautiful gate, it also could be the one inside. Scholars are unsure. They're kind of split on this. Uh, we don't know which one was beautiful and which one wasn't. Um, in either case, uh, the outer court there, after you went through the court of Gentiles, you get into the court of women. Um, and so then it, it goes on to the court of men after that, and then only priests and only the high priest can go in. It, it closes the ranks with, with each level you go in. But in, in, through this first gate, just so we know if somebody was healed, off to the right, there was an area where you could go present yourself then to the priest to show that you've been healed. So that's all uh, interesting and relevant to this story. One of those two gates this guy is sitting at as they come to pray at the temple. And as they come, we should see that it says, in my translation here, it says uh, the, a man who was lame from birth. And, and I wanna, I'm going to talk a little bit about sort of disability here, but I want to broaden it out first. But as I talk about that, I want you to be aware that I'm, I've been thinking about this a lot more than this text for a long time as a parent of somebody who has a physical disability uh, where it takes a lot of interventions to help thrive and survive. This is always on my mind, and I think we need to, to enter this cautiously but realistically in how we look at the text. And so let me step back as we talk about this man who is lame, and let me step back and further and talk about worldview itself. Uh, which is something I, co I come to a lot. And that is most of our worldviews, the way we perceive the world, are the framework by which we operate within the world. We all have a worldview. Most of our worldviews, I agree with Ravi Zacharias, don't, uh, they underestimate sin and its effect in the world. Uh, a lot of times we want to think people are much more good than they are. You can correct my sentence later if you want. Uh, much more good than they are. Um, we underestimate sin and its effect on the world very easily. And we know that there's right and wrong. I think it's even people that deny it know that there's right and wrong because when they see something that's wrong, they want to make it right. They might not have been the cause, but they want to make it right. 
We see injustice around us, and we want to make it right. We know that. We know that there's right and wrong. I think we know it profoundly, that there is a right and there's a wrong in the world. There's good and evil in the world. I think uh, back when I was a kid, um, the, the inconsistency of what seems like how right and wrong and good and evil and justice and injustice worked. As a kid, I used to play with a friend down the street. We used to play Transformers together, and I was incredibly careful with my Transformers, and he was reckless throwing them against the wall, and his seemed indestructible, and mine, with my careful taking and manipulating, seemed to lose an arm for some reason. I thought, oh, the injustice of this. But we know on a more deeper level that when somebody breaks into your house, your car, when somebody we know or maybe our, we ourselves face some kind of assault or we're insulted or something happens catastrophic to our bodies or those we love, we know that good and evil are there. We know that right and wrong exist. And we want some sense of justice, especially if there's a transgression that's come. We know this profoundly. As we look at what's going on then with this man who is born lame. Lame, we should recognize, is a useful and appropriate term in this case applied here. Uh, lame is not a useful and appropriate term. I'm just going to put this out there. When applied for something that's boring, take it out of your vocabulary. That's, that's actually insulting to those who, who are. Um, <clears throat> We should, we should also recognize when it comes to the effect of sin, we all bear the marks of sin's effect. We're all guilty to one degree of, of, of transgressing and of putting ourselves in the position of God, but there are an awful lot of ways that the snowball effect of sin throughout history affects us as well in ways that we didn't cause. And some of us bear those marks more profoundly than others. Romans 8 talks about the fact that creation groans for its redemption. Why does it groan for its redemption? Because it's been frustrated by the effects of sin. And it didn't even do anything. The inanimate objects out there. My dog didn't do anything, right? But we did. But when it comes to those particularly, um, I believe, who, who suffer the marks the most profound, we don't, I'm not suggesting that we cause those necessarily. But those particularly who have disabilities face the effects of the injustice of sin most profoundly in a way they can't get away from. And that makes it hard. And that, that makes us cry out for, God, something needs to be fixed here. And I also want to caution us from our language as we think about this particular man. Sometimes we'll use terms like differently abled, which has a very narrow way of being used. And it can be used when we talk about those with disabilities. But we want to be careful that we don't discount the fact that, yes, certain things might be heightened because of disability, but we don't want to discount the fact that there's something that can be fixed and redeemed in the, in the new heaven and the new earth because of the work of Jesus Christ. There's something that can be fixed and redeemed in all of us. There are things that, that aren't right, and we have to acknowledge that. And one day, God's going to make them right. Amen to that, I hope. Amen to that. And so we look at this man sitting at the temple gate, and we see that he knew his limitations. He also had a social network. Do you see that? He had people that carried him in every day and carried him out every day, and they knew their limitations too. The best they could do for this man 
is carry him to the gate so he could ask for money. They obviously didn't have the means to give to him, but what they did give, they gave him, and they'd all reached their limitations. And then this man encounters Peter and John. Let's continue on in the text, verse 3. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, remember, they're going into prayer. They're going to worship, and they see this man. When, they, when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave him them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Peter and John offer what they have. As we think about outreach, looking outward, that's our starting point. What do we have to offer? We offer what we have, not what we don't have, which seems really simple, uh, almost useless to say, but I think it's important. We shouldn't be longing for what we don't have, but recognizing what God's given us. They offer what they have. It turns out to be quite significant. First and foremost, we should recognize that what they give to this man is dignity. Do you see that? They give him dignity through their attention. They don't objectify him. I was in Denver, as I said last week, and I've lived in a number of places where uh, you're uh, confronted with uh, homelessness all over the place. I know Stephanie and I, when we lived in British Columbia, Vancouver, that's like the homeless capital of Canada, constantly. We knew the names, we knew the stories of people. But in Denver last week, I was at 16th Street Mall for a week, you know, going up and down, taking the free shuttle. I walked as much as I could uh, when I was there. And, and in a block's period of time, you'll have three or four people asking for change just within one block. You'll be offered a bracelet by a Buddhist monk, and then there's a, a survey at the end of the block if you want to take one from Greenpeace. All within one block's time. And it's just constant. It just keeps going on. And one of the things, uh, because in the position I have here, sometimes people come in asking for money on a regular basis, and one of the things that I think is very important is to look people in the eye and give them dignity when you're encountering situations where people need something like this. Because to not do that, we, we run the risk of objectifying those people and not recognizing the humanity of the situation. When Peter and John reach out and touch, when they stop and they say, okay, let's engage, they are both acknowledging the ability and the disability at the same time. They're acknowledging in him the person and the problem before them. They are not putting them one or the other. Peter and John recognize in that moment that in spite of differences, they're not all that different from this man, and they're recognizing that he's created in the image of God just like they are. He gives them dignity in that moment. As we then look at the outward expression of who we are towards the community around us and continue to focus our efforts on that, I think we can take that same lesson from Peter and John to stop, look, and listen to those around us. If we put it more pointedly, Peter and John are on their way to church and they stop on their way to this moment of worship to see who's around them at the beautiful gate. So church, we can ask the same question. Who's sitting at the beautiful gate in our neighborhood? Who's around us that we may or may not notice in any other way, except that we'd stop, look, and listen? So I did a little statistical study this week. Uh, a remarkable thing. Uh, 
through our denomination and our conference, we have access to some incredibly powerful data sets. Uh, and so ministry leaders, if you want more information than I give you this morning, I've got it, and I can do even more than we've done this morning. Let's talk about how we can target uh, and look around at our neighborhood and our city to make sure that, that we are reaching out the way God has gifted us to reach out and, and make sure we're not missing people. But um, furthermore, by sending me to Midwinter Conference last week, I, was, I got a, a seminar on how to use the tool, which is really cool. So you're going to get a little of that right now, but not very much. If you look at a 1.5-mile radius of our area from First Covenant Church and just draw a circle around, we have about a tenth of the population of Lincoln within just that mile-and-a-half radius, which is really remarkable when you think about it. Uh, that's 28,441 people. Um, let's go to Elena. The next one is a demographic slide that nobody else will be able to read, but it's there, available online later if you want it. And you can see the big green block there, or 87% white in our 1.5-mile radius. But interestingly, 2.9% of that is Asian, Asian-American population. That's the only uh, uh, part of the ethnic uh, demographics of our neighborhood that's expected to increase in the next five years, interestingly. Uh, it's a 3.5%. The rest is supposed to stay basically baseline in that. So that's just an interesting FYI. Um, mildly, our neighborhood is diversifying. Of that, let's go to the next slide. We have, if you break this down into the biggest categories of people that we have, and they could look like us, they could uh, fit in different ethnic categories as well, but at least age-wise, we have almost 2,000 people who would be in their autumn years. As these are, by the way, the Experian categories, not mine, but I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. So uh, we'll use theirs. Autumn years. So if you like the title, take it. That's wonderful. So people of 65, 70, the, the beginning of retirement for many people. They look like a number of us in the congregation. We have 2,000 of those within our neighborhood. Next slide, we have 1,400, almost uh, 1,500 people in, oh, this one's a fun one, blue sky boomers. Anybody in that category? So this is not quite hitting retirement. The kids are in college, exiting college, uh, even exiting high school, maybe looking at empty nesting uh, for the first time in life. The third category, which is really interesting, so those two categories, I think we kind of look like our neighborhood. The third category, we look a little less like our neighborhood, and this is the biggest category. 3,329 people in the category of singles and starters. Those who are just getting going, those who are paying bills for the first time, those who are living on their own for the first time, just a lot of them within our 1.5-mile radius. And if, if I'm to believe the statistics of the way Lincoln works, about 50% of the whole population has a religious affiliation, about 50% doesn't. I don't think it's any different with this category. So you got 1,500 plus uh, people in the singles and starters category who have no religious affiliation. There's a mission field right before us. Same with the other categories. There's a mission field right before us. Of course, there are more people. We've helped people that don't look like us in our area. Um, with refugees, but what's interesting is as you kind of look at all of, all of the categories of people around us, where we can find some commonality, a potential mission commonality is the religious beliefs of the people in that 1.5 mile radius around us. Most of the people in our area tend towards the belief that God exists. They tend towards the belief that God is actually personal and invites people into a relationship. They tend toward a belief uh, that Jesus actually existed and rose from the dead, and that good and evil are real things, and that there is right and wrong. They might not know what to do with all that information, though. 
And that's where we come into play. We already have conversation starters right there for outreach. If we just see them on our way as we worship. Let's go on to verses 6 through 8 to continue on with the story here. Here's what Peter and John do. It says, Then Peter Peter said, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with him into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. So Peter and John do, in fact, stop, and they look and listen. They offer what they have, and they offer something that actually meets the actual need at hand. Not the presented need of money, but something deeper that he didn't even realize was possible. It exceeds the expectations. And as I can just make this as an apologetic aside for you, sometimes it's easy to to question the miracles and how they happen because often we don't experience uh, these kinds of things happening. Um, If you get in those conversations with people, let me just give you a little helpful hint on how to engage in that. Luke hasn't lied to us about anything else in his gospel and in the book of Acts. He tells us peoples, names, places, events, verifiable things. Why would we doubt him on this thing? In fact, he goes on at great length to tell us. He doesn't just tell us in verses 1 through 10. He goes on through all of chapter 3 and into chapter 4 about this one particular incident. He's pretty fascinated by this particular moment. He hasn't lied to us about anything else. Why would he lie to us about this? Just in case you get into those conversations ever. But what do we have to offer? You can see the answer already up there. What do we have to offer the world? Church, hope and justice. That's what we have to offer the world. We have hope and justice. And we do that in outreach by entering into the story of other people, taking them by, taking them by the hand and walking with them in a Godward direction to give them that hope that one day redemption is possible, healing and cure are there, and that the wrong that's in the world will be made right, and even now we can be a part of that kingdom reality. It's not all going to be fixed now, but the more we engage, the more we are part of God's solution and that God-sized hope that we bring. They invited this man to enter God's story because they stopped. They gave him the dignity to say, you're created in God's image, but God has something more for you. They took his hand and they walked him into that reality. That's what our outreach is supposed to do, church. John Stott, speaking of the church and speaking specifically of Christianity, he he says, though we must know the theory and have the understanding, we must never forget that first and foremost, the Christian faith deals with life and living, right? The the ministry we do has to do with now, not simply later. Yes, later, but we engage at the now level. He says a dead church is a contradiction in terms. Is it a dead something? Call it what you like, but it is not a dead church. The church is life, and it is power, and it is vigor. So we can think of the the things that we can do as a church that are good and important. 
And there are a lot of good works that we can actually do that are useful. And we need to engage people at that living and life level, very clearly. If somebody doesn't have a house, we should be involved in building it. If somebody doesn't have food, we need to be involved in getting it. I think James is absolutely right in chapter 2 when he talks about what good is it to look at somebody who doesn't have daily clothes and food and say, go, be well, and be warm fed, but do nothing about their physical need. No, faith and works go together. you got to address both things, but you got to address both things, the physical and the spiritual, together. So it's good if we go and build a house. It's good if we go and, and take food. But we need to establish kingdom hope within those we minister to as we do that. That's the best work that we can do in outreach. They go together, hand in hand. Within the last 150 plus years, there's been sometimes a, a divergence between the doing the good things and the taking the good news out, unfortunately, in the Christian world. Uh, even to the point that one of the, the interesting and unfortunate moments in Christian history of this, is this great missionary fervor that happened up until World War II, the end of the 1800s, early 1900s, ended, World War I, excuse me, ended by the end of World War I, and there was even a report written by Christians uh, that said, you know, go and do the good works, drill the wells, do all that stuff, but don't take that Jesus stuff with you around the world. And unfortunately, sometimes we've lived that way. It's either take the good news without the physical or just do the physical without the good news. You can't pull the two apart and do the full gospel. If we do that, if we just go and do the good works without the good news part of it, I would liken that to going around the city and finding those people who are homeless and handing them Monopoly money. And when they go to cash that in at the counter, they're going to find out it's no good. We would give people false hope the same way if we just do the good things without the reality of the hope that Jesus Christ brings them, of the redemption and healing that comes with the physical. So when Peter and John reach out, they're illustrating to us kingdom outreach. It changes the immediate needs, but it also changes the entire person. It addresses the physical now, but it also addresses the spiritual reality behind it. It radically reorients the life of the person being helped. And, in turn, can radically reorient the culture of that person as it expands. Peter and John, they do something that still seems remarkable to us. They heal this man. And so we might be left wondering, wait a minute, is that what we're supposed to do? Sure. Sounds good but that's probably not our reality for most of us. It's entirely possible. It's probably not the reality for most, most of us. The healings that take place in the New Testament are all signs. They're signs of what God's redemption is going to be in the end. They don't happen to everyone all along the way, but we can have the hope that one day that is our reality. That's the good news. And everything we do in outreach needs to point in that direction. That we're addressing the physical and the spiritual at the same time. That when we go and reach out, we are giving that human dignity, but we're also giving the message of redemption. That you have value, meaning, and purpose. And God has given you those things. And that salvation can come even to your house. We've got to take that 
seriously. Our worldview must take that seriously. It must take sin seriously, so it also takes the hope seriously. That there's something desperately wrong in the world that needs to be made right, that God has made us, church, agents of walking people towards making that right. It's only by God's power that it's done, but he called us to be a part of that. Isn't that a remarkable thing? That's what our outreach is supposed to do. As you look through Christian history, I I find it remarkable that from the very beginning, and you can see it just a little bit before this, and you can see it certainly after this, the church was very involved in taking care of those who had no one else, taking care of the widows. We see a big uh, concern about that, especially in Acts chapter 6, to take care of, as you get out of the New Testament period, one of the most remarkable things to me is taking care of those who were completely abandoned. Ancient abortion practices were just to abandon a kid in the dump. Christians went and scooped him up, said, not on my watch, and raised him in their own homes. We, as the church, have been involved in helping those who don't look like us, who don't believe like us, but who lack those, the physical realities sometimes and definitely lack the spiritual realities of God's redemption. And we draw them in to both of those, to take care of both of those needs. The formula is no different today for the church, is it? We're still called to do the same thing. We're still called to look around, just like Peter and John as they walk to prayer, and stop and say, who's sitting at the beautiful gate that God has called us to reach out to? I want to thank, before we read the final two verses, I want to thank Dick Nelson and the global and local outreach team for this insert that's in your bulletin here. Um, They put together a number of simple and great ways that you can engage in outreach as we live out this goal. One side has individual opportunities, which you could probably do in pairs or groups. The other side has small group opportunities, and we, of course, encourage every small group to do at least two service projects a year, two outreach things per year. You can read through those And you can see ways that you can obviously engage. You can go beyond the list. If you do, let the global and local missions team know, or outreach team know, uh, what you did so they can add it to the list so others can benefit from that. I'm excited to live this out together. I'm excited because of the testimony that it will bring to us as well. If you read the last two verses of this section, I know we heard it all. There's no shame in hearing it twice. It says, When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same person who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Would we be filled with the same wonder and amazement as we reach out together? As we see people's physical needs being met, but as we see redemption take place and start to take hold in their lives to become more like Jesus Christ because we showed up and we saw them at the beautiful gate. Let's pray together. Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Your distinct call on us in this neighborhood in Lincoln, Nebraska. In this city where 50% of the people don't even claim a nominal faith, they claim none whatsoever. God, it should grieve us that so many are so far from you. 
Help us draw close to you first with ourselves. Help us look around as we're inside the beautiful gate and look at those around us to draw others close to you who maybe feel a little distant today, God. To be the word of edification and encouragement to our brothers and sisters around us. And God, help us be mindful as we drive through your city of ways that you've called us first to pray for those around us and then to watch your spirit at work and to engage from there. God, I thank you that you called us to be your plan of proclaiming the gospel to this world, that it's in word and deed that we do that. Give us the fortitude and the gratitude going forward. This we pray in the name of your son, Jesus.